Well, hey, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. This is your host, Ryan Finney, and this is the Word Up Podcast. We like to dive into the scripture, talk about the context and the content, what it means back then, what it means for us today, how they connect to each other, and how do we apply it to our life. So, with that said, we're going to dive into today in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 through 34. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So that was Matthew chapter 6, verses 28 through 33. Okay, so a couple of things I've been thinking about the last couple of weeks is what is uh, Jesus talking about? In the middle of this. So just to give a couple of context, uh, give us some context in what I'm reading. This is straight out of um, the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus uh, is beginning his ministry in Matthew. He does a great job of, um, Matt, the, the author Matthew does a great job of describing what Jesus is doing from the beginning of Jesus's ministry. We, we learn about baby Jesus, and then we learn about how Jesus starts to call his disciples, and then we learn about Jesus giving his sermon and proclaiming that the kingdom of God is here, it's near, it's at hand, and then he gives example of how to pray, and that we should pray for the kingdom to be here, and then he says that we should be seeking the kingdom. So, my question that I've been thinking about And if you Google this question, you're going to come up with probably a thousand answers. Uh, And so this is my take on it. (laughs) Take it with a grain of salt. But what is the kingdom of God? So this podcast is all about that question. What is the kingdom of God? And then next, uh, next podcast, next episode is kind of going to be a part two of this episode. And that is, how do we seek the kingdom of God? And my hope today at the end of this episode is that we understand the context of the Bible as a whole story and how we fit in this story and how we seek God's kingdom next week inside of our story today. And so to understand the kingdom of God, we have to, learn, we have to look back on when the kingdom of God was first talked about in the Bible. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn with me there. And that's going to be on page one. It may not be on page one. For me, it's page six. Uh, But it's Genesis chapter one, verse 27. Um, You know, in Genesis is the beginning, the creation story. God created all the things. And then on day six, it says in verse 27 of chapter one, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish 
of the sea and the birds of the air and over every creature that moves on the ground. Did you catch it? God said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. That word rule, it means something. If God would have said here, uh, run over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, then they probably would have been runners, right? Or if he would have said, um, garden over the fish of the sea, whatever that means, I don't know, I'm just using an example. They would have been gardeners, right? But he says rule. To rule over something means there has to be some sort of kingdom, some sort of culture, some sort of uh, belonging, some sort of community that you're ruling over. And so the kingdom of God is established in the beginning uh, of Genesis, the beginning of creation. And God gave uh, ruleship, companionship. He shared his responsibility with man and woman. Uh, By the way, the, the Greek, not the Greek, by the way, the Hebrew word for man here is Adam, which means human. And so it's for man and woman. And so God gives them, Adam and Eve, responsibility over the garden. He tells them that they're going to rule over them. He's sharing creation, his creation, with human life. You see, uh, we're going to get into this, but God shares things. God is a loving God. God is a um, God that creates life and gives life. And that is important to remember that God gives life. And so we know that from the creation story that Adam and Eve, they kind of uh, more or less fail at this assignment. (laughs) God gives them one rule. Do not eat of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat of it. And what do they do? They end up eating of it. And the reason why God doesn't want them to eat of it is because he wants them to rely on his power and knowledge and wisdom of what is good and what is not good, of what is good and what is not, and what is bad, what is evil. God has all the knowledge and wisdom and power towards what is good and what is not good. And Adam and Eve, by taking the fruit of the tree, they decide in that moment that they are going to rely on their power and wisdom on what is good and what is bad. And when they do this, they disobey God and sin enters the world. Sin enters the world and the ultimate, the ultimate um, separation of God begins. And it's not that sin is the ultimate separation. No, it is that what God told them that would happen, and that is death. Death would come upon them. And so, since they disobeyed God and sin entered the world, God had to do something. God, cre- uh, God came in and he, and it was not just that Adam and Eve sinned, right? They were deceived by the evil one. That's why they sinned. It wasn't that they just had this inclination of sinning, right? They were deceived to sin. And so, when this happened, God came in 
And he said, where are you, Adam? Where are you? The separation began. Shame entered into the world. And Adam and Eve hid themselves in the garden. They clothed themselves in the garden. And God asked where they were. He said, who told you that you were naked? Who told you these things? Right? Who brought shame upon you? And of course, Adam in his shamefulness said, oh, the woman made me eat from the fruit. <laughs> I thought, that's kind of funny. And then the woman said, no, it was the serpent convinced me to eat from the fruit. And so God did a, does what a heavenly father does, and he disciplines, and he curses the serpent, but he also gives a blessing to the man and the woman. And in that moment, he takes the man and woman out of the garden, removes them from the garden, removes the sin from the garden, and he places them in the earth. And from this moment, sin has entered. Now, God doesn't give up on man, doesn't give up on woman, doesn't give up on humanity. He understands that humanity is, his, is what he loves. He loves humans. You remember in the creation story that it was very good after he created man and woman. It's the only instance that it was very good. And so God creates a plan. He tells the woman that from her offspring will come a savior, basically. Will come a messiah that will um, smash the head of the serpent. And this is a promise that God gives in the very beginning. Now, sin has entered the world, and God has not given up on, on humanity. And if we continue to read the story, we see that there, there are um, links pointing forward to a Messiah, to people, to a, be, to a people group. Now, God calls this man named Abram. He calls Abram out of his home, out of his comfortability, out of what he knows, out of his father's house. And he tells Abram, Abram, I'm gonna, I want you to be, my, to be the father of a nation. I'm going to give you offspring. I'm going to create a nation out of you. I'm going to create a name out of you. And it's through you that we're going to bless this world that I created. Now, Abram, he's, a, he's an old man. He's like 80 years old, right? And his wife around 80 years old and she's barren she doesn't have any children and he kind of is like okay god prove it kind of thing <laughs> i don't think this is going to work and god says trust me have faith in me this is going to work now we know through the story of abram that eventually he has a son uh through god's way now abram chooses his own way one time has a son through his uh female servant and doesn't trust God that he's going to have it through Sarah, his wife. Or at the, ter- at the time, it's Sarai. And eventually, he has a son, Isaac. And Isaac eventually has a son named Jacob. And the promise continues to go down the line of Abraham. The promise that God says, I'm going to give you an inheritance. I'm going to give you offspring. And I'm going to give you a land to which your offspring will live. In your land, in this land, I will teach you my ways. I will give you my law. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And we are going to bless this world. 
And it's through these people that salvation will come to everyone. And so eventually, Abram becomes Abraham, Sarai becomes Sarah. He takes the name of God through the covenant that God gives him. And so Abraham, like I said, has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. And Jacob's name actually changes from Jacob to Israel. And through Jacob's offspring becomes the nation of Israel. And in, um, I'm kind of skipping ahead at the moment, uh, but they eventually end up in Egypt and they continue to multiply. They, become, uh, they continue to be fruitful. They become a huge nation inside of Egypt. And eventually a pharaoh of Egypt rises up, doesn't know who these people are, doesn't know why there's so many of them in the land, and decides to enslave them. And this is the first time in the Bible that we see an evil entity enslaving God's people like this. And so we see Moses rise up. God calls Moses, equips Moses, and Moses doesn't really want to do the job. He comes up with excuses, but eventually he agrees and rescues through the power of God the people of God. And they make their way through the desert for 40 years. And eventually, after a generation dies off, they're able to enter the promised land, the land in which God gave Abraham. And in this moment where God gives the people of Israel the land, he gives them a law. And it's like through the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch or the Torah, the teaching of God, God gives the people a way of living that will keep them holy, it'll keep them uh, separated from other people's influences, and it'll keep them uh, aligned with who God is and who they are to God's relationship. Now, we know, again, from the story that they don't do a great job of keeping the, uh, the law or the Torah but God doesn't give up on them. Now, eventually, they uh, they recognize God as their king, but they want a king. They want to be like the nations around them. They're being influenced that every all, all these other nations have a God, have a king. And we have a God, but we want a king, they say. And so they approach um God and say, hey, we want a king. Give us a king. And he says, I am your king. Uh, But if you really want a king, okay, go for it. And they choose someone who looks like a king but isn't a king. And God, again, doesn't give up on them. And he anoints somebody to be the king of Israel. The king of Israel. Very kingdom language is going on again. And and then we know from from church... (laughs) If you grew up in church, that King David, eventually, that this little little man named David uh, becomes king of Israel. And he's a man over, uh, after God's o- o- own heart, he writes a lot of the Psalms, most of the Psalms. Um, and he he loves God, and he loves God's people, and he leads them well. And he has a couple, uh, you know, failing points. But he leads the people of God well. 
eventually David dies and his sons take over and their sons take over. And it's through David's grandchildren that they kind of keep uh, moving away further and further away from God. And as they move away further and further away from God, prophets rise up that keep them coming back to God. These prophets say, come back so that you rule and uh, lead the people of God's people well. And eventually they get more and more evil and they further and further away from God and Babylon takes over. <laughs> Again, this is like a 5,000 foot view. There's more to it than, than just this, but Babylon takes over Israel and the people of Israel go into exile. And it's during this exile that a lot of major and the minor prophets in our Bibles start writing and prophesying about a savior that's going to come and rescue them, just like Moses rescued the people um, over the dominion of Egypt had on Israel, the nation of Israel. And they keep writing and prophesying and keep hoping for a Messiah to come along and rescue them. And eventually, towards the end of the Hebrew Bible, um, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, um, a man named Nehemiah has a vision and his heart breaks for the nation of Israel, that the, the walls have been torn down, it's been deserted, and he asks the king of Persia, now Persia comes in and defeats Babylon, but he asks Persia, the king of Persia if he can go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and teach the law and all these things. And he says, yes, go for it. And the, and the king of Persia actually gives them a blessing. He says, go, everybody. And so that's what they do. They go back and they rebuild the wall and they rebuild the temple. And, and they reteach, reteach the law to the people. And the people weep and they learn God's way. And something's not correct. Something's not right. Something's not like it used to be. Something's missing. But we have all the elements. We have the temple. We have the walls. We have the people. We have the teaching. What is missing? And it's the Spirit of God is no longer there among them. There's silence. The kingdom is kind of missing that kingdomship. The rulership of a king is missing. And the people of God, the people of Israel, they know that a Savior is coming. They know, they thought it was going to be this guy named Nehemiah, but maybe another guy is going to come and save them and rescue them and that the kingdom of God will be fully established and they will rule over all the earth. This is what they're hoping for. For a long time. And then Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up in the city of Capernaum and starts recruiting people and telling them that the kingdom of God is near, that it's here, that it's among you, that it's in the midst of you, that you should repent. And these people know exactly what he's talking about. The people of God know that this guy, he must be our king. He must be. He must know something that we don't know. And so they start following him, and he starts teaching them about the kingdom of God. And I just read something from the Sermon on the Mount about anxiety, but he teaches 
even more about that. He teaches about how to pray to our Father. That when we pray, we say, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God starts inaugurating the kingdom of God back into our back into the world, back into the earth. And is through his life and his, and his ministry that the kingdom of God is being established. And it's through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that now we have the power of the kingdom of God in the earth. We also know that Jesus ascended after his resurrection. And he sits at the right throne of God. He is fully human, and he is a perfect human. He is a perfect Adam that was going to be ruler over the kingdom. So God is a perfect, the perfect ruler over the kingdom of God. He has inaugurated the kingdom of God. And one day, Jesus is going to come back and bring the kingdom of God fully into the earth. One way I like to think about it is like a pregnant woman. You can see the baby. You can feel the baby. But you haven't experienced that baby yet fully. <laughs> and that's exactly how Jesus is going to come. We can experience the kingdom of God here, now. We can feel it. We can sense it. But when Jesus comes back, it'll be fully here. It'll be a new Jerusalem, a new heaven. There'll be community. There'll be shalom. There'll be unity with God. We will walk together again like we did in the garden. And so when God says, seek the kingdom, he says, seek these things. These are the things that you should be seeking. But in the next episode, I'm going to dive into more of what it means to seek the kingdom. And I want to encourage you to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And this is the Sermon on the Mount. And this is where Jesus teaches us the Lord's Prayer. This is where Jesus teaches us about the kingdom of God and how to seek the kingdom and, and what the kingdom looks like. And so I want to encourage you to read 5, 6, and 7 with open eyes and open ears because there's a lot of things that, can, that Jesus points out in his Sermon on the Mount talks about anxiety that I just brought up. He talks about how to handle money. He talks about how to bless your neighbor. He talks about how to bless your enemy. Uh, most of us don't think about these things. <laughs> so again, read 5, 6, and 7. And then if you're bored after that, uh, I encourage you to read 8, 9, and 10. And this is about Jesus' healing ministry, his compassionate heart on the poor, and the powerless, and the fatherless. So, that's my encouragement and my challenge. And I would just ask, as you read it, ask the Spirit to, to speak to you. Have open ears and open mind and open eyes so you can see and hear and know what the Holy Spirit is doing through you. And next week, not next week, next podcast, we'll dive into more of what it looks like to seek the kingdom of God. So, with that said, thanks for listening, and we'll be seeing you next time.